the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you The Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification. Live, July 22nd, 2018. This is Martin Sobretti with the Chalcedon Foundation. I'm Vice President and Editor of uh, the Publications. And uh, this is another session of uh, Chalcedon Q&A, A Little Meat of the Word. Wow. There we go. Interestingly enough, I was actually seeing uh, the questions coming up in dark blue, and that's not going to work if that's going to persist. <laughs> So, let's hope that the, they look better than that once it's time to uh, take questions. Now, we do have some questions that were sent here. Ah, oh, that's better. Now they're coming up in white. I can read white against black, dark blue against black, not so much. So, we had a couple of questions that came in online. And uh, <clears throat> as soon as uh, Ground Control lets me know that we're connected to the uh, Calcedon website, uh, we'll proceed. Again, you can watch these broadcasts on Facebook. Oh, we're good to go. So we're connected, so we have a simultaneous feed both on Facebook Live and as well as on calcedon.edu. As we always tell folks, if you want to send questions in advance, ask.calcedon at calcedon.edu and get them a little bit before um, showtime. So here's one that popped in. Um, This came in directly to me. Hey, Martin, could you address this question on your Q&A today? When Nineveh and other pagan nations repented, did they follow the shadows of the law or just the light? Did they adopt the dress code, dietary restrictions, and ceremonial duties? So the question really is, uh, how much content of the law were they suddenly obeying out of the blue to forestall the judgment that was called down by God upon them uh, for their sins, particularly their violence? Nahum 3.1 informs us that the prevailing sin of Nineveh was violence against others, internal, etc., now, it's an interesting passage because I was looking at the, the passage in Jonah. Let me pull it up here. Because there's a sequence of events, and most people don't catch this, and it's worth catching it, if at all possible. There it is. Thin pages make for moving a lot of pages, chapters at once. And here we go. Verse 5 is Jonah 3, 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. So what's interesting is that the resurrection or the uh, reformation of the nation began not with the king top down, but from the people bottom up. That's rather an interesting notion. The people who were closest to uh, Jonah and interacting with his message were the ones who believed on Jehovah. Now, you cannot have uh, a belief on Jehovah and belief in pagan gods simultaneously. That syncretism is not allowed. 
So they essentially had to drop all their pagan customs and ways in order for it to be true that they believed on Jehovah, that is, a delivering faith from God's wrath, uh, which was due unto them, and they full well knew it, that it was due unto them. So it started with the people. In verse 6, For word came unto the king of Nineveh, more literally, the thing became known to the king of Nineveh that the people were uh, fasting and praying to God and turning to Jehovah. And he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth and satin ashes. So he was kind of the, uh, the, the Johnny-come-lately to the process. But then he made it, made it official, in effect. He caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way. There it is. And from the violence that is in their hands, they full knew well that this was the indictment of all the other nations and God against them. So it's interesting, even the animals, the cows that uh, figure in so prominently in the final verse of Jonah, uh, are made to suffer, in, in essence, a wordless lamentation and re repentance for sin is, is even put in the mouth of the animals who also were not allowed to be fed during this process. So if man and beast repented. That's quite significant, and I think it's one of the reasons that Christ drew attention to the level of national of repentance here when he pointed out to the Jews of his generation, you know, uh, Nineveh responded, but you guys don't. And there's a greater here than Jonah. And so it's kind of remarkable what's going on here. And then the uh, reply is here in verse 9, Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? So they didn't even have a promise that God would do anything. They, they had only a uh, uh, clue that they had that this taking these steps would have any effect at all on the looming downfall of their nation was that God had sent a messenger to them. And that to them said there's one must be a, a seed of hope in the fact that God unleashed his word here and told us of this. Uh, if he wanted to destroy us, he could have just done it, bam, without warning, and we would have deserved it. But he sent a messenger. And so they are inferring from the messenger perhaps there's hope because God didn't leave us without word, and therefore, if we respond to that, maybe there's hope. So even on the chance that God would turn his wrath away, the entire nation repented and turned to Jehovah. Uh, and they prayed to God and changed their ways. That's important to notice, that the sequence is that they pray to Jehovah and then seek, because they have to have Jehovah turn to them to even see and acknowledge that they're changing their ways. Uh, I'll get to that question, Kevin, as soon as we get the other two done. But thank you for already filling my queue with good questions to answer or, or to avoid and, and uh, walk around, as the case may be. Uh, and God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. So uh, as to the question as to how much, the point is that there's a turning, there's a metanoia, there's a change away from paganism to the worship of Jehovah. Now, I've said this many times when I drew attention to what was going on in Haggai, uh, the first chapter of Haggai, where the, they're supposed to be rebuilding the temple that was begun under Ezra and Nehemiah, and instead everyone was looking to their own sealed houses, seeing to their own luxury and their own comfort, and God's houses laid waste. All the uh, foundation timbers are rotting out there in the weather. And then they're suddenly surprised when you know, they looked for much and saw little in terms of harvest. There was a hole in their purse, as Haggai puts it. And what? 
caused God to change his froward approach, his hostile approach to Israel in Haggai when they started walking toward the forest to get the lumber to rebuild. In other words, just the mere fact of changing the direction was enough for God to say, okay, you've made a move, I'm going to lift the sanction, I'm going to bless your change in direction so you have no reason to revert back to the other method. God showed mercy, if you will. And he is a God of infinite mercies. And so too here, none of his case, the mere fact that they were changing directions, they laid off, put off the old man of violence and evil amongst each other. That doesn't mean that they fully adopted every single rule. And we know that this was a temporary um, conversion here in Nineveh. It did not last forever. But the generation that saw it would rise up. They're just like the generation of the Queen of Sheba would rise up in judgment against the Christ generation because the greater than Solomon was there in front of them. Same token, same thing is going on here in terms of Nineveh. Now, it's astonishing how huge a national conversion was achieved in so short a time by Jonah's work. And he didn't even want to convert the nation of Nineveh. He is what I call the wrong-headed Zionist. He was so committed to... Uh, Israel first, everyone else last, and preferably our enemies uh, lick the dust, that the whole idea that God would bless their enemies was alien to his thinking. And that's why he fled the other direction, and that's why he was so angry in chapter 4. He says, was this not the thing I'd say, that they would repent and you would be merciful to them and you wouldn't destroy them like I was looking forward to? <laughs> so he was looking for, uh, with joy to the downfall of God's enemies. But God's enemies became God's friends, at least for a season. At least those people had become worshippers of Jehovah that they fell away is something uh, due to Israel's failure, of course, because they were to be a light to all the nations, and they were not. And uh, they were more like Jonah in terms of their orientation. We sure wish that uh, all our enemies would be gone. Uh, this was not the intent of Solomon when he set up the temple. Is this not a house of God for prayer? Here's a prayer for all peoples. Uh, the earlier uh, Israelis had a world-encompassing notion about what God was doing, starting with Israel as a pilot program for the kingdom of God worldwide. And that's why the law of God goes forth from Jerusalem, according to the passages in Scripture, such as um, Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. This actually very nicely dovetails in, uh, and I see Zachary's uh, point, and I will get to that also in time, uh, dovetails in with the second question that arose, and this came in online at... Uh, Calcedon.edu, imagine, or was passed in directly to Ground Control. Uh, boy, that's not the right sheet. I need to do burn or destroy these old ones. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. My family, yeah, it did actually come in uh, through to Ground Control. My family and I have recently been studying eschatology. Our background is in dispensationalism and premillennialism. However, we have been exposed to postmillennialism and now covenant theology. We would like to become familiar with the postmillennial view of Revelation. Also, our uh, ethnic uh, heritage is Jewish. How would the postmillennial ideas view Israel, literal interpretation, etc.? And what simple layman-level books on postmillennialism do you suggest? From uh, Jesse Dieterle. So, very, very good questions uh, in terms of what postmillennialism teaches and respect to Israel. So let's talk about this notion, uh, and I'm going to again revert to a passage I deal with a lot, which is Isaiah 19 verses 18 to 25. This passage in Isaiah uh, is astonishing because it talks about the conversion of Egypt as a nation. Uh, there shall be five uh, cities in Egypt that will speak the language of Canaan, the lip of Canaan, which is Hebrew, uh, and they shall swear an oath to Jehovah and perform it. Uh, and uh, the sixth city shall be called the city of destruction. The city that's not, that's not there. Uh, 
it really entails that uh, five or six cities are converted to Jehovah and the other one's gone. <laughs> so it's 100% really coverage. Uh, and the Egyptians shall uh, build an altar to Jehovah and perform uh, uh, sacrifice and oblation there uh, and vow vows, free will offerings, and perform them. In other words, not be slack with their offerings, but do them. So all this is talking about Israeli worship being done at an altar in the border of Egypt, which of all places is not allowed. After all, God was not very happy with the false altars being set up by the northern ten tribes when he had proclaimed that Jerusalem there, uh, down south, was the one place that we would seek the Lord's face. And yet, here is um, Bethel, uh, and, and it's a false uh, chapel to God. It's really a chapel to the king, as Amos, uh, Amos 7 tells us. But so it was a phony chapel, a phony uh, place of worship. And God did not countenance or allow or shine his countenance uh, strongly and positively upon these forms of rebellion, in effect. But to the, to the um, altar in the border of Egypt, he smiles on it. He, he uh, endorses it. He blesses it, if you will, the turning of the Egyptian nation to him. And uh, let's take a look at that passage, because then we have this notion, as he is behind uh, earlier than Jonah, Isaiah... Now the pages seem thicker than before. Variable thickness page Bibles. It's a new thing. There we go. Now, in that day there shall be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the border thereof, uh, and it shall be a sign and a for witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, etc. Uh, in verse 21, And the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice, oblation, yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord, and perform it. And then it gets interesting in verse 23, In that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. In other words, serve Jehovah with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt. This is very significant. We have Egypt and Assyria coming into the kingdom of God first, and then the declaration that Israel shall be the third with Egypt and, the Assyria, and Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. Verse 25, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, there's no curses here anymore, blessings, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. So here you have the two worst early enemies, uh, certainly at the time of Isaiah's writing, the uh, worst enemies of God, Egypt and Assyria, who both sought the destruction of Israel, now being blessed by God, and he's calling them things like my people uh, and the work of my hands. And then Israel is mentioned third, and even it says, and Israel is the third, not first, third. Now what's, being, what's going on here in Isaiah 19 is what's actually the topic of Romans 11, when God, uh, Paul is talking about God's plans for Israel, that the darkness has happened to Israel in part, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. The fullness of the Gentiles are represented by these enemies, Egypt and Assyria. They come in, and then Israel, the par partial blindness on Israel, is lifted. And so we have a, a, a partial salvation of Israel throughout time, leading uh, at the same time that the Gentile nations are finally coming in until all of them are converted. And then once all the, is all the Gentile nations are converted, the partial blindness on Israel is lifted. And they come in last. Israel is the third part after the enemies of God come in. So therefore God's promises to the patriarchs are kept. He does not uh, uh, forget them. He does not set them aside. He keeps them. 
So our view is that Romans 11 should be taken in the literal sense. Now, what has happened through time, and I commented this uh, in the Journal of Christian Reconstruction uh, Symposium on uh, Eschatology, came out in 1998, and I see that uh, Ground Control put up the Millennium one, but there's also another um, JCR, Journal of Christian Reconstruction, on this topic, where I deal at length with the exposition of Romans 11 throughout time, why so many post-millennialists uh, were unwilling to take the words in their literal sense. In fact, Lenski said this, only an exegete would take these passages literally, which meant that he objected to post-millennialists who said the entire uh, Gentile population of the world will be converted to a man, and then the entire Israeli population will be converted to a man, and will have nothing less than a worldwide uh, salvation, worldwide conversion, as Warfield and other post-mills have taught. So that's the essence, is are we going to take these passages literally, or are we going to poo-poo them as exegetical? Because as uh, Meyer points out, the uh, reformers were induced to depart from the literal sense out of dogmatic considerations. In other words, they had an anti-Zionist tilt to their thinking, and this in turn influenced them, induced them to depart, and try to explain away rather than take at face value what Paul is teaching. Uh, as, and the simple words don't cease to offer resistance to the literal interpretation, as Meyer points out. So it's very, very important to realize that the future of Israel is bound up with the future of Egypt and Assyria because Israel is tied in to be the third part after they've come in and been blessed by God, after these highways have been built between uh, Israel and Egypt. By the way, um, if you um, want to talk about open versus closed borders, it's a very interesting teaching here about borders, and it's in verse 23 that the Assyrian goes into Egypt and the Egyptian goes into Assyria. There is parity, there is reciprocity in this open border. It is not a one-way open border, it's a two-way open border. Rashtuni even not even taking acknowledgement of the question of this particular verse said it's inherently unjust for an open border to be a one-way open border. Uh, and unless it's a two-way open border, it is inherently unjust and doesn't satisfy any biblical criteria or defense. But that doesn't mean that open borders aren't in our future, but they're in the future based on what's going on here in Isaiah 19, verse 23. Reciprocity and people coming together to serve Jehovah for the purpose of migrating across the border. Perhaps he, um, it'd be a joy and a blessing for the Assyrians to worship at the altar set up by the Egyptians, or vice versa. Uh, apparently, these people that are enemies of one another, after all, Assyria did destroy Egypt, and then Babylon came to destroy Assyria. There's a sequence of world... Uh, um, conquest went after the other before Rome hit, and then Rome fell, and only Christ's kingdom, the stone cut without hands, is expanding until it becomes a mountain that fills the whole world. We're living in the early stages of that stone expanding to fill the entire world as the final kingdom that will have um, dominion over all of them. So thank you, Ground Control, for putting that up. So uh, the notion that there are promises to Israel that have not been kept, in my view, is correct, but they are couched within a post-millennial system. Now, uh, if you are of a Jewish ethnic heritage, I would recommend things like the commentary by Hengstenberg, insofar as he was one of the world's great experts up until his death in 1862 on the Old Testament. So when he reads um, New Testament books, he sees them through Old Testament eyes. He sees all the connections to the Old Testament better than most scholars do. Uh, and that's why he only wrote two, two uh, New Testament commentaries on the two New Testament books that reference the Old Testament more than the other, and that would be the Gospel of John. He has a commentary on John on my shelves here, too, and the commentary on Revelation. 
and he'll tell you where each of the fundamental passages and revelations are anchored to the Old Testament originals for which they're alluding or appealing to or grounded on. So that'd be a good place to go. Now, that doesn't mean that I have a, a blanket endorsement of Hengstenberg, uh, but it does mean that uh, there's good fruit uh, there to be had by those who are willing to plow through a relatively um, uh, older commentary. For new commentaries, uh, remember that there's several different positions on how to take the Book of Revelation, all three of which have been compatible with the post-millennial view, ironically. Uh, one is the historicist view, that the Book of Revelation is setting forth in chronological sequence events from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. Uh, that was held for quite, quite a few Puritans, for example. Modern example would have been the late Dr. Francis Nigel Lee, whose commentary on Revelation is available for free online for those who want to review that monster PDF, heavily researched. And he's not the only one in this camp. There's also the uh, idealist view, which is Dr. Rushtuni, Warfield, Hengstenberg, myself, which says, yes, the book of Revelation predominantly is speaking about the time between the advents, but it's not to be taken as a series of chronological events, but rather different facets and look-sees, if you will, different ways of looking at the same period of time from different aspects. Uh, and that's uh, known as the uh, idealist view. Uh, so it's not strictly chronological. We would not say that events in chapter 9 follow chapter 8, but rather that there's about seven basic segments, each of which cover the same period of time uh, from a different vantage point. And then finally, uh, another very credible position is known as the preterist view of the book of Revelation, and that's had a very strong um, resuscitation in modern times due to post-millennial thinking. Uh, this would be evidenced by the works by Bonson, by uh, Dr. Damar, uh, also Dr. Ken Gentry's commentary. Uh, David Chilton did a commentary from a preterist point of view on the book of Revelation. Uh, the position there is that the passages in, in the Revelation deal with God's divorce of Israel and culminating in the Vespasianic War that ends in 70 AD. So the bulk of the book of Revelation, therefore, is to be directed into the first century for, for its fulfillment. So uh, that notion, of course, means that we're talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and uh, Israel and his judgment for turning aside its Messiah. Uh, that would uh, be certainly a legitimate form. Now, my particular view is all these three positions that Postmas hold, uh, we need to debate friendly, if you, if you will, in a friendly way with each other, uh, respectfully, realizing that there's certain value uh, in all three positions. Uh, for example, the preterist position, uh, takes very seriously all the so-called uh, cues that these things are to happen very shortly after having been composed. That uh, um, the idea that the events are postponed for centuries thereafter does not uh, do justice to some of the passages you know, that talk about these things happening very, very quickly, very soon. Uh, the time is at hand, for example, indicates contemporary relevance, not this will happen in 21 centuries. So the difference between a futurist who positions all of this stuff way into the future into a very short period of time and a preterist who puts it all into the past in a very short period of time is that at least the preterist is taking seriously the use of the language that indicates contemporary relevance is at hand. Uh, so I am a respectful, sympathetic critic of the preterist position. I don't hold to it, but I understand the reasoning behind it. I think it has a lot to say. Uh, in the final balance, I become an idealist. I still think that the passage that Revelation talks about a much bigger span of time uh, and a much bigger battle than just the destruction of Jerusalem. But 
that's me, and that's Rush Juni, and that's Warfield, and other scholars. So uh, the learned postmillennialist should be aware of all the views, uh, because that's still being sorted out. Remember, it took uh, the church what five centuries to resolve the question of Christology uh, in 451 um, A.D. at Chalcedon. Uh, soteriology, the study of justification by faith alone, that took till the Reformation. Uh, we still have outstanding battles that are yet to be resolved about the Word of God and inerrancy, um, creationism, uh, and eschatology. Eschatology is likely to be one of the last loci, or loci, if you want to pronounce it, uh, of systematic theology that will be resolved where everyone sees eye to eye, as promised by Isaiah. One day we will have doctrinal unity. In the meantime, we're supposed to have an organic unity uh, working with one shoulder uh, for God's kingdom and not to receive ten talents from God and return back zero talents. We're to be multiplying what he's given us in the meantime. So all that to say, uh, there are good commentaries. A good book on general postmillennialism would be uh, He Shall Have Dominion by Dr. Gentry. Uh, though it focuses uh, on the preterist interpretation of Revelation, uh, it also focuses on the general exposition of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, indicative of the conquest of the kingdom of God over all the other kingdoms. So that what's at stake is, is the Great Commission going to be kept and fulfilled, or is it going to be a colossal disaster that goes very, very, only so far and no farther? Uh, in other words, is it a limited salvation and a limited Great Commission? And our concern at Chalcedon is, isn't it the Great Commission, not the mediocre commission? <clears throat> it's not adequate to simply convert one person from each nation. That does not answer to the Great Commission, the requirement. Notice also this, that when we're talking about the book of Revelation, or prophecies in Zechariah, etc., uh, we are talking about prophetic pictures of Scripture. Uh, we're talking about predictions. But is our duty to be determined by our interpretation of predictions? Or is our duty to be determined by commands in Scripture? You see, the command in Scripture is to make disciples of all nations and to teach them all things whatsoever Christ has commanded. That's the command. So your duty is to be framed and shaped and, uh, and walked in in terms of the command, not your understanding of the prediction. If, you're, if you got the prediction wrong and you based your walk on that prediction, you're in a world of hurt. But if you walk according to the commands of Scripture, you'll be in good shape. So our view is if everyone is a practical postmillennialist, in other words, everyone is trying to make disciples of all nations, postmillennialists are happy people because <laughs> you're saying, well, that's what we should be doing anyway. And if uh, we hold hope that that's going to have a positive result and you don't, at least you're doing the right thing, even if you don't hold out hope for it. But still, it's much better to operate, I think, in terms of a hope. After all, when Christ tells us, lo, I am with you even unto the end of the world, as Warfield says, through this throbs a promise of Christ's being with us, uh, that he's in the process of the conversion of the world, and we are not on our own resources, but rather he's intimately involved in that process. So that should in energize us toward great deeds for him, doing mighty things for the Lord. Now, I'm going to scroll back and see what the questions were that popped in while I'm chatting. There's, let's see here. I think Kevin's probably was the first one. Hi, Sean. Glad to have you here. Diane. Okay, Kevin Amundsen. Matthew twelve twenty says that Christ will bring justice, righteousness to victory. Is this referencing the establishment of the law? Uh, as a matter of fact, yes, because Matthew twelve twenty is actually uh, a quotation with a slight modification out of Isaiah forty two. If you read Isaiah forty two, it's a messianic prophecy. Um, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth, I shall put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles, meaning I'll bring, he'll bring forth justice 
to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth, or justice unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he has set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. So everything is tied together with the law of God. And that's where justice comes from. And the nations are waiting for his law so that justice might be established, because that's the uh, framework and that's the charter, uh, the codified form of God's justice, how it works and how it is to be applied and how we can appeal to it as a reference to the transcript of God's character. And so this is what the change is between Christ's quotation and Isaiah's original. In Isaiah's original, he says, He shall bring forth justice unto truth. But well, I keep hitting this tripod. My apologies, people. Um, it's a bigger Bible. I better use this smaller, teeny Bible here. It, doesn't, it seems to be tripod safe, this one. And uh, what, when Isaiah says, he shall lead justice to truth, I, when Christ quotes it, he says, he shall lead justice to victory. Nikos, a whole different word. So Christ leads justice. Justice becomes victorious over the world. This is the distinction here. And this means that truth and victory are concepts that Christ is uniting. The truth will be victorious <laughs> over the entire world. All lies will be, uh, and darkness will be driven away. In fact, that's the premise of 1 John 2, 8, that darkness is passing away and the true light is shining already. And as Warfield point out, points out, there's a, a, that verse contains a bosom of a prophecy about the conversion of the world and the conquest of the darkness by the light as the light continues to spread. It's a process. Just like the leaven leavens whole three whole meshes of meal, by the power of it at least all is leavened. And the word there all means with omission of no part. The entire world will be leavened by the kingdom of God and modified and transformed by it in a positive way. Zachary asks, I know that people will naturally twist scripture out of context. Really? Are you sure about that, Zachary? <laughs> if they want to. But do you think that dividing scripture into chapter and verses was a foolish idea? Should we start printing Bibles without the verse divisions? Certainly seems like it's made it easier to twist scripture, speaking for myself. So this brings up an interesting point. Are all the chapter divisions um, what we call felicitous? In other words, do they give a happy, positive result, or do they uh, potentially create a false impression because of where the division was made? Um, and some people have made the joke <laughs> that the... Uh, and the division marks, my old pastor used to enjoy this uh, squib, uh, and I doubt it. It was totally true, but he says someone was riding on a horse, and every time that he, he took a break, that's when the chapter break started, and then he would resume the ride when his, um, didn't have, uh, his behind wasn't hurting so much from the saddle. Uh, so wacky stories like that have multiplied to explain and account for them. Really, it's a judgment call because the division mark is not canonical. It simply isn't. We would argue against that. And I can see places where, in fact, the um, division mark is deceptive insofar as it creates the notion that this passage is done and now a new section begins. I'll give you an example. Uh, it is, in my view, completely wrong that Revelation 8.1 is the first verse of chapter 8 rather than the last verse of chapter 7. It actually concludes that series. Uh, and it is a conclusion, not a new start. It's the ending of a series. Uh, and this is one obvious place where the uh, fact that there's a chapter break creates the impression, oh, here's something new happening. We've got new ground going on and new vision. And it's not the, it's the conclusion of the preceding vision. In fact, it's the climactic conclusion of that vision. That for the entire day in Patmos, an entire half hour was spent by John where nothing in heaven was happening. Heaven was silent. 
Now, this is astonishing because heaven has always got rumblings and lightnings and thunderings because it's a response of God's righteous wrath against all injustice on earth. So here, how is it that for half an hour, God is not angry with the world? The explanation is that at that point, the world gave God nothing to be angry about. It was a converted world, and it was walking in terms of God's law at this point. And so this vision was a stunning time where essentially John cooled his heels for a half hour in heaven. Division. He's just probably saying, it's peaceful here. There's been nothing but rumblings and thunderings and lightnings and grief and, and wrath being poured, etc. And here, it's quiet. But the heavens are not quiet when God is raining his wrath down upon the world. So that's actually the conclusion of the, of the sequence of events and not, in fact, a, a new passage. And a lot of folks who've looked at this said, well, there's one bad chapter break, to say the least. So, yes, they're not canonical. Now, why are these things useful to us? Because we want to find the address of the scripture. It's very easy for me to say, uh, um, look at this passage, and I can give you the address, and you can immediately say, oh, he is referring to, like, Nahum 3.1, I appealed to earlier, about the violence from um, issuing forth from Nineveh as a city, its reputation as a violent place, uh, as was commented on um, by Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, uh, all the military listings are a dry list of conquest by Nineveh. That's all they were doing was conquering people left and right. That's what they do. They're good at it. Uh, unfortunately, God didn't like it because uh, it defied his law. And it was just um, mankind red in tooth and nail and, and sword and spear. So, yeah, do we want to get rid of them or do we want to make a right use of them? Or do we simply say, you know, they're established by precedent and when I'm preaching through, say, Revelation, I'm going to make a comment that the chapter of a break is a terrible one. Uh, but one day we might fix it. Interestingly enough, at Christ's time, when they were reading from, you know, when Christ read the passage from Isaiah, um, he simply found the place. Did they have marks? Or was it that they had the pattern established by say, the later the scribes at the time, how many lines they would put on a page, uh, and things like that. Perhaps there were conventions that made it easier to find. Of course, Christ would have no trouble finding any passage in the anything in the Old Testament since he wrote it. And he is the Word incarnate. So, but yeah, I don't. I think it's not so much as a foolish idea. It's a, an idea that was subject to abuse, especially if you put too much weight on the chapter break. That's what I'm saying, because some of them are in a bad place and need to be understood as being deceptive if treated as a break or a disjunction in the text. Let's see, next question. Ground Control's been busy with quotations and sources for you guys. I hope you guys click on those. And Dustin Raymond has also given us uh, something good. God's plan for victory. Uh, and uh, thank you for that, Dustin. You've been doing some great work over there at Reconstructionist Radio, bringing all sorts of resources to bear. And I appreciate what they're doing in that regard. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Jessica. Hengstenberg, H-E-N-G-S-T-E-N-B-E-R-G. Uh, Whipfenstock, W-I-P-F, and Stock, S-T-O-C-K, is a new publishing company, I think, out of Washington State. And they've been republishing the uh, commentary by Hengstenberg and a lot of his other works, too. A uh, good place to go acquire uh, the Hengstenberg commentary if you want to get a copy. Uh, they have it available on Amazon. And so Ernst Wilhelm Hengstenberg. Uh, most people know him because he went toe-to-toe -to -toe against Gesenius on the question of whether Isaiah 7.14 referred to a, a virgin, Alma was a virgin, or was it just a woman, a maiden, who was not a virgin. And Hengstenberg stood up for the orthodox position against Gesenius' more uh, rationalizing progressive view 
uh, <clears throat> that it was a, truly a virgin that was going to give birth, a miraculous birth. Hengstenberg with an H. All right, and, you know, we love, love streaming. Thank you, Calcedon Foundation, put the whole name up for me. So <laughs> if I scroll ahead, I get in trouble. If I scroll behind, I'm, I'm, I'm behind. Yeah, yeah, that's also a good point. There's some deceptive chapter breaks in the Book of Romans as well. Oh, all right, and the, the chapter breaks in Matthew and the Gospels. Again, those are uh, human conceptions of a logical place. So there's different kinds of logic. There's chronologic, chronological place. There's a teleological place where the purpose suddenly shifts. Uh, there can even be a contextual shift where we move from, um, say, prophetic events to ethical considerations. Those would make for interesting breaks, but sometimes it simply means that in the course of a discussion, Christ would suddenly uh, take and shift his focus. You know, he'll, he'll like talk about something and then all of a sudden switch to, uh, what about you guys? This is how it applies to you. Because Christ was always interested in the application. It wasn't just always, well, these nations going to do this, these, but what about you? What's your situation? What, what will God find you doing? I think one of the most interesting places this occurs is in um, uh, Luke 18, the parable of the importunate widow. Because at that point, Christ at the end, uh, he says, uh, nevertheless, the Son of Man, when he comes, will he find this faith on earth, the faith that the woman has, which is ev uh, evidenced in importunate continual prayer uh, to achieve it. So he's really then putting it to the, to the disciples. What will I find when I come back and see what you're doing? There's always a sense when Christ returns, he's looking for a return from his people that he left behind busy to be doing their job. And so he's asking, will, he, will the Son of Man find this among you when he comes back? It's not that the answer is a no, it's that it's ethical impression and he is turning the thumbscrews to make clear that you guys are on the hook. And you have an obligation to continue in prayer, in season and out of prayer, out of season. Okay. Can I comment on the parable of the dishonest manager in Luke 16, especially, and there's a colon, is there more to it? Can you comment on the parable of the dishonest manager in Luke 16, especially, one, in what ways was... What the manager did commendable, what is the unrighteous wealth we should bring, be using, and how should we should we be making friends with it, and or how shouldn't we, and what is this business about? Okay, so basically, uh, a lot of the parables, Christ is singling out one particular conduct or behavior that's commendable, uh, and saying there is some wisdom in what is being evidenced in this picture that I painted for you. Uh, and that doesn't mean that all the rest of the uh, parable uh, is also commendable. Rather, the rest of the parable is a vehicle for teaching something. In this instance, uh, the fact that provision was being made uh, for his future, uh, even if it was an unrighteous means by which he was doing it, he was defrauding his own owner and things like that to his own manager, or the, his boss, if you will, for whom he managed and had a fiduciary responsibility for his goods. But he was trying to uh, see to his own future uh, and doing whatever it took, even if it was wickedness. Now, this is the one point, is that his zeal for his own well-being, his own soul, if he was his own future, is the thing that uh, Christ is pulling out for attention, not the means by which he did it. Uh, he's saying, you know, there, what we should be modeling is uh, his zeal for him, his own soul, if you will, his own future, uh, his destiny. Uh, he's trying to provide for himself in the future in the only ways that he knows how. Now, we are not so limited. We know exactly we need to be on the Lord's side if we're going to have any future at all that's worthy of the name. So that's really the focus on the parable. 
And so anytime we try to then uh, look at the trappings, the visual trappings and the symbolic pieces, the tapestry of, the, of a parable, and try to uh, micro-manage um, each part or try to uh, analyze each little piece as if it has significance, uh, we get into the kind of trouble that the schoolmen, the scholastics had in the past or when we had extreme algor um, allegorization of scripture. Uh, trying to read into each little detail some special thing without actually catching the main meat of the passage. And so we major in the minors, and we should not do this. So with the case of a parable, we should try to identify exactly what's being taught, what the point of the parable is. Uh, that's why we go far afield uh, if Christ actually tells us in advance, or the gospel writer tells us in advance, what the parable is about. For example, I just spoke about Luke 18. Why was that parable even spoken? Well, it actually has a prelude in Luke 18.1, and Christ spoke this parable to the end that they might pray always, yeah, urgently in season, see, uh, that they might always be in prayer. That was the purpose of the prayer, of the parable. So it had no just, uh, the details of the parable were simply to indicate a situation where someone might be inclined not to pray, but in fact she does. And we need to be modeling that kind of uh, importunate prayer, continual prayer, continually hammering God to keep his promises to be just and See ju seek justice on his, in his name and on his behalf for his people's sake. All these things come into play. So the parables are there for a purpose. They're to open up spiritual truths. But they're not necessarily to model conduct for us across the board. They don't tell us that um, if you're an unjust steward, like that magistrate in Luke 18, keep going until someone hassles you to death and then give in at the last second after you're ready to explode. That's not what the teaching is, and it doesn't mean that that's how a magistrate should operate. So let's not extract from a parable things that don't uh, actually lead to the point that's being taught, intended for teaching. Glom onto the teaching point, major in the majors and not in the minors. <clears throat> so that would be my corrective against taking uh, and doing an overly excessive analysis of all the parts of any given parable, because then we are off into the weeds. And it's not edifying either. Those become uh, questions, um, debates that minister questions, as St. Paul calls them. And we don't want to be ministering questions. We want to be edifying. Let all things be done unto edification. I keep quoting this about once a day lately, and I'm starting to be the world's worst broken record on this point. But if we're simply going to drag people down and attack and, and uh, launch missiles, that's not edifying. Now, it might be purging, but it's certainly not edifying. And our calling is to make sure that everything is done to edification. By the way, God is pretty good at purging his own house. Uh, Christ is very good at, uh, at uh, thoroughly purging the threshing floor. Uh, our calling is to be faithful. Let's see here. Okay. Joe Smith asked a question. Daniel 7 depicts judgment that seems to match final judgment. Books were open, but history seems to be in progress responding to that judgment. Do you have a comment on this? Well, one thing we should notice is that when Daniel is taken up into heaven, there is a stream of fire pouring forth from the throne onto the earth. That fire is God's providential judgment against all unrighteousness. This is the Old Testament form of the um, passage in Romans 1, 17, 18, where the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, from up there, um, uh, against all unrighteousness here on earth. Uh, so it is being poured out. We've commented on the verse in Second Chronicles 34. Great is the rage of the Lord, or the wrath of the Lord, that's being poured out upon us. And that phrase is, in the Hebrew, glowing fire. Great is the glowing fire of the Lord that's being poured out upon us. It's God's wrath in action. Uh, and 
in fact, even in Revelation 5, 2, uh, there's a sea of glass, and it's glass mixed with fire. There's fire on the earth. Fire is representative of God's judgment in all these cases. Uh, God purges the world, or baptizes the world with uh, his spirit and with fire, with judgment. So, uh, same too in Isaiah 4, verses 4 and 5. Uh, God pours his uh, purges with fire the daughters of Zion. He purifies them this way. Christ is even depicted in Malachi 3, 1, as, uh, and following as a, he sits uh, as a refiner's a refining fire in his fuller soap and he purges the sons of Levi, etc., etc. So it's a purging, cleansing fire, if you will, that purifies and, re and removes the dross, removes the um, um, evil from history, the wickedness, judges it, and thereby pur purges it out. So um, books being open doesn't necessarily mean the uh, thing. It merely means that there's an accounting to be had, and that's what the wrath is all about. So it seems to me that if you take all the parallels into account, notice also that it's not that the uh, Son of Man is coming down from the Ancient of Days to judge the earth in some kind of second coming, as is known in premillennial circles. The passage is very uh, clear that he is going up to the Ancient of Days. It's the ascension that's in mind. Then he sits at the right hand of the Father at that point, uh, and from that point, the judgments flow because judgment is given into his hand. He holds the keys of uh, death and Hades, as Revelation 1 informs us. So, it's a vision of the enthronement of Christ, the ascension of Christ. There's a great book by Milligan on the ascension of Christ, on, specific, on specifically this topic. My perspective on the Crusades is a mixed one. I don't get my doctrine from Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, there are attempts to defend some of them. Uh, and uh, to the extent that we're talking about the defense of uh, Christian Europe against Islamic invasion, uh, some of them had a basis. Um, and I'm not saying not a um, top-to-bottom blanket endorsement of any of military actions being taken. Uh, the, spreading the gospel with the sword is not the right way it's to be spread. The sword comes from the mouth at this point, and it's the sword of the gospel. God has chosen the foolishness of the preaching to convert the world not the sword. Uh, so a defensive war is one thing. Uh, offensive wars to go take territory, that's another. So uh, there are folks who have spent a lot of ink on this topic and given, I think, closer to a balanced view on this position. Uh, obviously, it becomes a point of conflict between Muslim and Christian today. Uh, and so uh, some people may not have ears to hear a balanced position on the Crusades. Most people want either a complete raw endorsement of them or a complete condemnation, and there's no room for any holds of hope in the one or of, of, of darkness in the other. It's, everyone wants to have 100% great or 100% bad, and I see a mix, and um, not and some good and generally not so good situation, but in some cases were justifiable. And by the way, if you're going to send uh, anyone under than 20 years old into war, uh, you've already don't have God's support on that. So just one case in me talking about the Children's Crusade. Uh, Kevin and Matthew both asked questions that I don't think you dealt with. I'm pretty sure I dealt with Matthews, and I'm pretty. Not see if I'm looking for Kevin. 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 Matthews, I did answer the question. Kevin. Looking for Kevin. I did. I caught them all. So I'm going to scroll back. This is the one with 
ridiculous interfaces because I'm essentially brushing my beard upward as I'm doing my scrolling. Okay, can you come in on that? Okay, we already caught that one, Luke 16. Yeah, the filthy looker one. Okay, so I think I have a, a and we have 22 people watching. Holy smokes. Dave Stolfus. And just so you know, Dave, someone I know is looking for some airline tickets, so when you can get to those, that'd be super. Thanks. Uh, can you comment on Galatians 5:15 and some of the current infighting in the Reconstruction community? Let me refresh my memory on that particular verse. I'm pretty sure I know which one it is, but I don't want to trust it. Oh, that's what I thought it was, of course. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. So apparently, no, a lot of people are going at it without that heed. Now, why would someone go heedless into a battle to attack uh, another individual? It's because they believe the stakes are so high that uh, on balance, heed is not called for. Rather, righteous indignation is called for. And so at this point, they set aside the teaching of Galatians 5.15 because they believe it's not applicable to this case. This is a special case where the crime, alleged crime, is so serious and heinous that we need not to have this balanced approach. This is uh, no longer in the domain of Galatians 5.15. Rather, this is open war to protect the gospel itself. And at that point, all sorts of enormities can be defended. Uh, because if I have now demonized and dehumanized the other side to the point that they are not granted this kind of um, deference, even in disagreeing or in calling um, uh, them on the carpet for something serious, uh, then I've gone against what Paul has instructed as the rule for within God's church. Even if you're throwing someone out of church, it is uh, to be done according to order. God's a God of order and not of a bunch of vigilantes with flaming swords. The angels can get away with that because they answered to Christ, remember? And in Psalm 103, we're told that they're flaming messengers doing the will of God continually, hearkening to the voice of his word continually. That's not us. Human beings are also driven by emotions, and sometimes it is a righteous zeal that drives us. But a zeal uh, which can consume, it's a fire that consumes us, consumes the soul, uh, can also be zealous for the wrong cause. After all, we all know that the, the Jews uh, had a zeal for God, but not after knowledge. Sometimes our zeal for God is not after church order or godly order between Christians. Um, the other point is that someone will say, I've already exhausted these steps. I've taken the uh, Matthew 18 steps. Or this thing rises to such a level of uh, heinousness that uh, these steps can be scarcely skipped. You know, you don't wait to deal with someone who is raping uh, the faith, say. And so when you escalate something to that level of dis discourse, we're going to end up consuming one another because there's no conditionality in this verse here in Galatians 5.15 that can be seen. It's not saying unless, of course, they are, uh, have forfeited their right to this kind of conduct. You know, we talk about, yes, someone who's going to take the truth and hurt people or kill people with it has forfeited the right to the truth. But under what conditions are have you forfeited your right to being uh, treated this way even when being called on the carpet, even when being rebuked? So, um, and that's assuming the rebuke uh, is a valid one. I'm not saying that it isn't. I'm saying that the approach to it should be scriptural. And uh, Paul is concerned that the Galatians, who apparently could miss some very obvious uh, heresies in their midst, that's why Galatians 1.11, 1, 1, 1, verses 19.11 were written, um, following another gospel, Judaizing and things like that, they were very, very willing to go to launch into each other on a whole host of things. And uh, it did not bode well for their sense of community. Uh, Christ would then say, you know, they would know that you're mine because 
and you see that you're all one, you're unified, and there's no unity. Uh, and we even disagree with each other. So when we justify a wrong course, now we're kind of digging ourselves into a hole. Now we are fortifying our ramifications against attack. And we're now couching it in a whole different way. We're framing the debate so that the gospel's at stake. If you don't see it my way, you're an enemy of the gospel. You're probably a friend of this uh, interloper. Uh, <clears throat> these, um, it's the word that's used, malefactors around here. And the worst of it is because we're, sometimes we're talking about who, other people who name the name of Christ. And be, if they become the object of legitimate criticism, uh, all of a sudden that criticism rises to the level of anathematizations. Uh, and it's dubious whether those anathemas are being pronounced by a body duly constituted. <coughs> now, whether you need a duly, body duly constituted is another question. But the fact that it has an, apparently a lawless component, and there's no, 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 no appeal allowed for these things. Uh, and in fact, sometimes I've seen situations where, well, I'll stop the attack when they fulfill these conditions. And the other people say, well, I'll fulfill those conditions when you stop the attack. Now what? Standoff. Uh, and is this Christian to have such a standoff? It means nobody's willing to give quarter. So um, we are not to seek our own. We're to seek Christ's honor only. And we're not to color our own indignations as if it was us just simply being faithful to Christ. A lot, um, virtually in, throughout history, every evil thing perpetrated by many Christians has been defended and justified as the uh, necessary in protecting Scripture. So I wonder what Christ thinks of that. I think uh, this is a character issue in modern Christendom. Our knowledge of Scripture has kind of gotten ahead of our ability to apply it with wisdom. Sure, we can apply it the way we read it, and, uh, but do we have every single scrap of Scripture relevant to that point in our hands and marshaled, ready to discuss? And the answer tends to be no. Oftentimes I'll enter into discussion and say, well, what about these factors? <clears throat> Find out they weren't considered. In other words, we had a partial aspect of the law being applied, uh, and insofar as the piece was being applied, it was probably being applied correctly as a piece, but when put in larger context, there was a problem. Uh, there were mitigating factors that were not put in place, and yet off we go with the sword. So that is a problem. Hey, thanks, Dave, for that. Okay, so the discrepancy between Christ's uh, genealogies, uh, which, of course, is between, between Matthew and Luke. Uh, the attempts to harmonize these go in several different directions. Uh, basically, I'm not going to, I've uh, been through this stuff way back in the 1970s, so I'm not going to be able to, at memory, tell you what the, the gist is, except that I'm confident there is not a true uh, conflict between them uh, insofar as their teaching is concerned. I'm not sure that it was ever convincing to say one was Mary's and the other was Joseph's, uh, but uh, even that doesn't explain everything that looks different in the genealogies. So uh, if, that's, if you're interested in that, Joe Smith, I'll um, send me a direct uh, private message, and I'll actually um, dig up, fresh, refresh in my memory, and we'll deal with it uh, first thing next week. Because I'm glad to get to that point, because it's important to realize that the Scripture is trustworthy, and lots of times we hear people using alleged discrepancies between the Gospels, uh, as an excuse to say, see, the Word of God is not inerrant. It conflicts with itself. Well, sometimes it's showing two different aspects to a thing. Um, by the way, um, as long as we're on this topic of genealogy, I'm going to wind back to that question that was asked um, by Jesse about Revelation. Did you know there's a genealogy in Revelation? Have you ever looked at it? It's a fascinating genealogy. One thing that we notice about the genealogy in Revelation, I believe it's in the seventh chapter, 
is this. Look at, compare the birth order for Abraham's, uh, or rather uh, Jacob's children, the sons of Abraham, right, and great-grandchildren. Look at the birth order and then compare to the Revelation. It follows no order close to the birth order. The ones that, if you talk about how Jewish is the book of Revelation, it's terribly anti-Semitic from this point of view <laughs> because it is it, th it throws everything in terms of um, spiritual categories, not the categories of the flesh. Hengstenberg brings this to bear. He brings it out saying, look at this uh, astonishing genealogy. People would just walk through and say, oh, sons of uh, uh, so-and-so, 144,000 sons of Asher, sons of Issachar, blah, blah, uh, and just walk right through it as if it's not meaningful. But the actual names being given are meaningful because the order would make a serious challenge to Israeli understanding of what's important because the Jewish understanding, which is primogeniture and other factors, birth order, uh, is all thrown aside, tossed out completely. It's a spiritual uh, genealogy in every respect. It puts the things of God first. So I think it's an astonishing thing. Okay. Uh, by the way, Ground Control, how are we doing on time? Right, and we do uh, post these Q&As, and not only can you get through them, if you want to scroll backward in time quite a bit on the Facebook page for Calcedon, but also calcedon.edu, our website. We post them all, usually within a week of them happening, and you can point folks, friends, to them. Again, they're very, very freewheeling. We have no idea going in what the result's going to be. So we give it our best, working without a net, as I like to call it, and try to deal with the questions, find the meat of truth in them, try to find the application where appropriate, and uh, because we're not just here to um, satisfy curiosity. If that's what it is, this would be a trivia show. It'd just be a Jeopardy show. And it's not, because everything is to be undone on edification is to build up the kingdom of God. So the more we understand the scripture and the better we understand it, the better we're placed to be confident in it and to make our way through life directed straight and true. That's one of the beautiful things about the Lord of God is he takes all those crooked paths and he makes them straight. So a better understanding of the Word of God makes our path straighter to the extent that we are no longer have a misunderstanding of a passage of Scripture. How many times do I hear from people who've said, I held to this view for years, and I suddenly realized it was wrong. So I, God shed some additional light upon it, and boom, it, it lifted my um, life. You know, Before I was under this, this oppressive notion, and it was faulty the whole time. Other times we see scholars suddenly change gears, saying, I taught this wrong for years. This was uh, uh, G. Campbell Morgan was teaching premillennialism for years, 40 years, and his books were all very premillennial. Still good books. Jeremiah, his book on Jeremiah is one of my favorites on Jeremiah, The Prophecies of Jeremiah by Campbell, G. Campbell Morgan. But he himself said, if I had it, I would, um, every book that I had that was premillennial, I would rewrite it. But I'm too old to do that now. And so unfortunately, my legacy will be propagating a position I no longer hold to. He switched to more of an amillennial, postmillennial position. Uh, from premillennial dispensationalism. Same thing happened with John Murray, in effect. He taught uh, amillennialism by and large until his last uh, few years at Westminster. Then he became a post-mill, and very few people knew it unless they took his class uh, because he was assigning even the things like uh, Gary North pointed out. He assigns uh, polyneschatology uh, by Vos, which is an amillennial work. So all this to say, even scholars sometimes suddenly shift gears and say, I've been teaching wrong, and I, could live, I have thousands of my books out there with their false doctrines. 
<laughs> I was looking at a book by Charles Dyer about the, uh, the coming uh, situation with Babylon. I had a picture of uh, uh, Hassan Hussein on the cover. And, uh, I guess they got to. I wonder how much those books go for now that Hassan Hussein is not much of a factor in world history anymore. He's uh, helping fertilize flowers or something. Okay, right, and right, exactly. Patience is called for. This is the patience of the saints, we're told, in many respects. Uh, and if that's in the case with the kind of persecutions in Revelation, where that verse pops up, this is the patience of the saints, how much more so in dealing with one another should we be patient? After all, the provocation level is nowhere near what was going on in the book of Revelation with the judgments on earth going down. So, all that to say, uh, patience is one of the attributes of God himself. It's one of the most godly things to be patient. Uh, Rushton even has a commentary, and I believe it appears in A Word in Season, possibly uh, Good Morning Friends on Patience. And I think it's an excellent little story on patience, and it reveals the fact that when we're patient, we're most imaging what God himself is like. So, thanks for everyone listening. We had a pretty good crowd today at 20, and a uh, live crowd. We certainly get you know hundreds of views thereafter. But it's nice to have folks uh, holding my feet to the fire in the process. Remember, you can uh, send your questions to ask.calcedon ask.calcedon at calcedon.edu. Also, we have a Book of the Month Club coming up on Mythology of Science. I'll be conducting that on August 6th. Sign up if you haven't. In fact, I need to sign up or I can't host it. I'm sure Ground Control will told me that. And uh, support Calcedon in any way, shape you can, uh, especially in prayer, because the prayers of the saints avail much, and we appreciate them. Thanks again for letting me into your uh, uh, homes today on the Lord's Day, and I pray that you will go away um, with more questions uh, to ask me and certainly fortified by whatever answers I gave. And we pray that uh, your speech too will be seasoned with salt and patience. Amen. Talk to you next week. Thank you too. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Selbredi. We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you in all that you do.